Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis, and welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about election law and critical race theory. Leo Whalen joins me in studio to talk about critical race theory in public schools. A new chapter for America Can We Talk starts tomorrow and Easter and Passover and America. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. We've been talking about critical race theory on my show several times recently, and I want to spend a bit of the First Five telling you a little more in-depth about what critical race theory is and the reason it matters so much in America today is because it is permeating everything, permeating especially the public schools. But I want to just give you some basics about the idea. I mentioned last or two weeks ago, I think, we talked about critical race theory having actually very long ideological roots. There was a critical theory that emerged, I think, late, late 1800s. There was critical law theory, critical race theory. And it was these kind of intellectuals sitting around uh, ass theoretically assessing society and finding bases, different ways to look at things. And so it sounds like it's kind of you know, maybe esoteric and all, not all that interesting or not all that um, you know, relevant to everyday life. What has happened with critical race theory is there have been proponents who have emerged in America urging that the idea of critical race theory needs to be the new basis upon which we think about pretty much everything. And I'll just give you some basic things that critical race theory, what it, what it is based on. It believes racism. This critical race theory is based on the concept that racism is present in every aspect of life every aspect of life, every relationship, every interaction, and therefore it has its advocates. What ends up happening is the advocates for it and those who are taught by the advocates for it look for racism everywhere. It's, it's the point is to look for racism everywhere. There's also a concept, I finally got dug down and understood this. It relies upon a concept called interest convergence. And so basically saying, white people only give black people opportunities and freedoms when it's also in the interest of the white people. And therefore, it doesn't really make racism any better because the only reason, say they, critical race theory advocates, is that you ever find anyone, uh, any white person doing anything kind, good, thoughtful, reasonable as, uh, toward people of color, they only do that if it's for their own interest. So they reject the notion that perhaps there are people of every skin color, race, ethnicity, national origin, who just do the right thing because that's the kind of people that they are, because that's their God-given identity as being, being a good person. It, it is also critical race theory, very down on free societies, wants to dismantle free society, the basic freedoms upon which America was founded, and replace them with an entire structure of society that they control, and also treats race as the entire defining factor of every single person, not 
you know, you're a good person, you're a selfish person, you're an intelligent person, all the qualities individuals have in this country. The whole purpose of critical race theory is to label you by your skin color and therefore, and, and assign to you, that's your place in life, that's your identity, that's all you can ever be, it's what you are. So critical race theory has this just crushing of individualism, which was, as we talk about many times on the show, the most basic of promises in America's founding, each individual each individual has rights from God simply because they were born to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. The whole notion of the individual as being the sovereign, as having rights from God, these are things not acceptable to critical race theory people because everyone is thought about and assigned to a race category. The, the thinkers behind this, if you want to call them thinkers, many of them at Harvard, um, they actually talked about the idea that... Um, and this is an important concept to understand because all of this thought that I'm telling you has begun to permeate society and permeate education. And often what the critical race theory people do, if they just tell you bluntly and, and very in a very forthcoming way, here's what we think, if they wouldn't say to you what I just said to you because they try to insinuate these critical race theory concepts more subtly into curriculum at school, into society, because they want they, the mental manipulation is, they want the people listening to what they do say to become themselves critical of themselves, doubtful of themselves, unsure of themselves. They're planting seeds of division along lines of race. And if they tell you very bluntly what they think, then you wouldn't listen to them. So it's a very insidious and subtle theory. Next point I want to make. These two main theorists, foundational critical race theory scholars, Richard Delgado and Jean uh, Stefanik, Stefanik, however you say her name. Anyway, they make the argument that racism is ordinary, not aberrational, is normal science, is the way society does business, it's the common everyday experience of most people of color in this country. So instead of looking for incidents in which they can say, don't you think it was kind of racist that an employer made this decision or may there have been a problem with racism with respect to this particular issue in criminal law or criminal justice? It doesn't work like that when you're a critical race theorist. The concept is, the assumption is, everything you perceive about, Amer about America when you are a person of color is based on your color and that racism is ordinary and everywhere. Um, there's also this notion that they don't really look around to... Um, look at just behavior of individuals. They're talking about the entire structure of our society, the structure of our, our schools, our government, our culture. They are looking at a big picture, or they would claim it's a big picture, but it goes along with the idea that racism pervades everywhere. They, and so advocates for critical race theory and those who are taught this theory end up looking for racism everywhere. One great and last point I'll, I'll get to before, I don't want to hit in this first five, a quick point about the elections, what's happened in Georgia. But when you look, when you take two things together that the race theorists say, the critical race theory people say, you realize that there is no way out. There is no way out for a responsible, reasonable person of, of, who happened to be white to ever get out of the construct they have created. Because even if you respond to some points they make and say, well, that's a good point. I didn't realize maybe I had some subtle implicit racism in what I thought. This is really helpful. Thank you very much. Even if you are agreeing with them, 
you're instantly assigned, according to their interest convergence theory, which is an aspect of critical race theory, that you're just making this up because you want to be accepted. You can't win. You can never get to the point where, in the beautiful words of Martin Luther King, other people are judged by the content of their character. All they focus on is the color of the skin. It is an insidious, ugly, divisive theory. I love when Governor DeSantis of Florida said he was not going to allow critical race theory into the uh, public schools in Florida. And he basically said, I mean, he gelled it down. You can read reams of documents online about critical race theory. He gelled it down to this. Critical race theory teaches children to hate America and to hate their, their fellow Americans. We're not doing that in this state. And that's about what it does. But I want to just point out what happened to, um, in Georgia. You know, we've been talking about the election integrity legislation that just passed in Georgia. And, and in case you, lest you think that this uh, election integrity legislation was, you know, a wild, uh, you know, venture out into really irresponsible or repressive uh, election integrity provisions, it's things like, we're not going to have voter drop boxes spread all over the state, unmanned, who knows who's putting things in. They're resorting, going back, they're actually going to have the, vote, the vote, voter drop, the, mail, the ballot box drops near precincts. They didn't even have that before, but they're not going to go with the pandemic motivated, put them all over the place. So that was one thing they found uh, just deeply oppressive. Uh, they're actually going to say a voter has to provide a driver's license or state ID number to apply for a ballot. This is what's being called racist. What I just said to you, that you're going to have fewer ballot drop boxes, that you're going to have to actually provide a, a, either a driver's license or a state ID number to apply for a ballot. The other changes that were just, oh, they also had, they're, they're complaining about having reduced the amount of time uh, that you have to apply for an early ballot and, uh, and how close to the election date you can apply for an absentee ballot. What came out of the law, the period of time you can still do this, apply for an absentee ballot, 11 weeks before an election, so you don't get months ahead of the election, up to 11 days before the election. The bottom line, what I'm telling you is, there's nothing even remotely racist in what the Georgia legislature did. It's plain old common sense. They could have done a lot more. People familiar with election integrity law recognize many more things could have been done. They did a little bit, and they have had that just heaped on criticism of uh, the Georgia lecture, the Georgia legislature that passed this. I'll tell you three quick examples of that. We were at a function last night uh, for raising uh, money for an organization that is looking at election integrity legislation. And we heard this story by someone who's heavily involved in all this. In Georgia, there were two members of the Georgia legislature who were also partners in law firms, in two separate law firms. So you know, if you're a partner, it means you've gone through the associate stage, you've made partner, you're, I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. These two lawyers who are members of the Georgia legislature who voted yes on this election integrity bill, both were forced to resign from their law firms. This means the law firm is making the calculation. It's more dangerous to keep in our precious law firm, someone who supports election integrity, than it is to boot him out when he passed a law that everyone can understand is basic common sense. But the, the success the left has had in painting election integrity as somehow racist, 
that, that's an outcome of it. You also have the CEO of Delta Airlines complaining that this is racist, that you this law is untenable, it's racist, you can't have this. Uh, the Masters Golf Tournament, I talked about the other day, they're being pressured to move the Masters Golf Tournament to some other state. Major League Baseball is talking about moving their all-star game out of Georgia. And then the law partner story. I'm telling you, my friends, the world has gone wild. And what it really does tell you is how successful already the radical leftist Marxist critical race theory is in changing the way society functions and changing how we see each other. And these are not changes for the good. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. I mentioned before the start of the show, we have a guest. He's in studio, which I always like having someone in studio. I have Leo Whalen in studio with me. Uh, he lives in the Dallas area, which is uh, where this show is. And um, he uh, became aware of some things in the public schools in his area um, and the Highland Park um, public schools related to the invasion of critical race theory into the junior high school and high school in those areas. And, and these are areas where, I mean, these are... Um, very high caliber schools. People try to buy a home in these areas because the quality of public schools are so, is so high. So, but he came to understand what uh, was being taught for his uh, grandson in high school and grandsons in middle school and decided to do something about it. So, and that, the reason I wanted to have him in to talk to you is it's great to listen to my show and you can, I can read you theories, I can tell you about case law, I mean, I can you know, lawyer it to death what's wrong with critical race theory. But what you really have to understand, this is everyday America, everyday families, families who just trust their children to the public schools, not realizing how much the public schools are contorting and, uh, and just, just destroying uh, truth because they bring critical race theory in very insidious ways and in ways the families had no idea it was coming. And so you had one guy who stood up here in Texas and I'm welcoming him to the show right now. Hello, sir, hello, Leo. How are you, Debbie? I'm great and I'm glad you're here. I'm very, very glad to be here. And I wanna say that was one of the best summations of critical race theory that I've ever heard. Oh, thank you. I'm gonna quote you for saying that. You okay. may, <laughs> and I, I wanna add one thing to that if I may. Please do. Critical race theory is gigantic business. Uh, this year alone, $25 billion. Is that bees and boy billion? Billion. Uh -huh. $25 billion funded to the critical race theorists, people that are proponents of it. They're making that kind of money, and the, the biggest share of that is our taxpayer dollars. I think that's a component that so many people miss, that these people aren't doing it because they love it. They're doing it because they're being paid a phenomenal amount of money. $10,000 an hour? For a for a speech, ten thousand. I would take that. Yeah, I'll every give a speech. day. <laughs> every day. So it, it's the, the critical race theory people, Robin DeAngelis and uh, Abram. Uh, I mean, his name is uh, Abram Kendi. That yeah, that guy. They're doing this for money. They're not doing this because you know they love spreading the beauty and joy of critical race theory. They're making a fortune off. They are making a fortune. I love that you add that point. And I'll also, something I said to my listeners before, we are watching in this country that American left has been taken over by Marxist ideology. The Democrat Party is no longer on the American playing field. And critical race theory, beside being divisive and harmful and false, it ends up enabling the division of America, the siloing of America, from which leftists derive political power. But back to what happened in your schools. Okay, okay. so I will tell you one thing I read about your schools here. So uh, in Highland Park, these 
lovely schools. Uh, someone had asked the administration, well, are, are we doing critical race theory here? And um, the answer was, oh, no, no, I'm not doing that. And I, so there's, an, uh, in fact, this is on our website. I, get, I put a link on it in our show today. The Center for Racial Justice in Education, which is a critical race theory, probably a gazillion dollar, I don't know how much money they have, but, but it's an organization designed to feed, to allow critical race theory to slither its way into public schools. They actually list on their website what schools have agreed to accept their training, their teaching, and the Highland Park schools, lo and behold, were right on their Highland Park Independent School District. So there was some misrepresentation about the schools to start with, whether even indulging this stuff. Okay, that's enough on the surface. Tell us about what happened with you and your family. Well, I uh, have two sons, well, two grandsons, they're twins at the middle school, and I pick them up two to three times every week. And uh, invariably, I ask them, have your teachers started teaching you critical race theory yet? Because I've been I've been very cognizant of what's going on around the country. I read a lot, and um, and th they thought I was crazy. Uh, and, and and I didn't ask it enough that they would I would really force the issue that I was crazy. But I I did ask it uh, at least once a week. Uh, about February 28th, my daughter-in-law, who's the mother of my grandson, who's a junior at the high school, called me and said, "Well, they're, they're teaching critical race theory." Um, based on implicit bias, which is one of the tenets of critical race theory. And she shared the information with me that uh, he was being exposed to, and, and I blew up because uh, I, I, I think, number one, the parents should always be notified of this in advance. The curriculum should have been put forth well in advance of being given to any child. It, it's the best of my understanding that the state of Texas has not approved this is a, a, a curriculum for schools yet. And in fact, there is a House bill in the legislature right now to keep critical race theory out of the state of Texas. Yeah, I'm hearing that's dead in the water in the House, maybe not. Okay, and, yeah. I, and I just heard about it recently. But, uh, you know, in, in conjunction with that, the federal government is proposing this giant plan called the uh, Civic Secures Democracy Act that's going to force critical race theory don't they think of great names? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, it's well, it's the the creep you're talking about, the slither. It's exactly what it is. You start at a little bit at a time, and you're giving people the options of the different things that they're allowed to do to earn course credit. Uh, protesting outside the school, at, uh, you know, at a business or at a gov another government agency is you can get course credit for it. Because it's considered civics education. Yes, it is. Teaching kids to protest. To protest. Civics education. Lobbying, primarily liberal understanding media liberal it's it's unreal and and all of that is being proposed right now and it's going to be forced nationwide and it's going to have billions of dollars of funding behind it because our current president is is forcing all these theories all across the government whether it be education the military all throughout the the whole industrial government complex absolutely true absolutely true i was going to mention one thing that um and then you sent me some videos. I, I sent them to Matt the Wonderful. He is going to play them and just play. We'll do them one at a time. Right. One way they survive, they get these theories into place is because 
when you begin talking about it, they can have some similarity to things most parents teach their kids. Like, you teach your kids, you know, try to put yourself in the other person's shoes. That's, that's a good thought. I mean, it's a, right. you know, um, walk among your neighbor's shoes, see how they perceive the world. And so you can hear some of these ideas, the beginnings of uh, critical race theory, and think, oh, they're just saying the same kind of lessons that I say in different words. It's a very subtle, uh, making its way, wedging its way in, into the uh, curriculum and into the minds of kids. That's exactly right. Yeah. So Matt, I sent you um, three clips. Matt, the wonderful one there. I think we'll, we'll play clip one. Let's see. Implicit bias. Implicit bias. 2016 was the year that implicit bias went somewhat mainstream. Yeah, so when Hillary Clinton mentioned implicit bias in the debates, our phones started blowing up, all our friends started emailing us about it. But what is implicit bias? Implicit biases are basically thought processes that happen without you even knowing it. Little mental shortcuts that hold judgments you might not agree with. And sometimes those shortcuts are based on race. First, some clarity. Saying someone has an implicit bias is different from calling someone a racist. The word racist is a highly loaded term right here in American society. A lot of times when people are using it, they're thinking of the kind of old-fashioned Ku Klux Klan style racist. But implicit bias isn't anywhere near that you know, explicit. Implicit bias is something that comes out of ordinary mental functioning, out of how the mind normally works. We've all grown up in a culture with media images, news images, conversations we heard at home, our education. Think of that as a fog we've been breathing our whole life. We never even realized it, what we were taking in. And that fog causes associations that lead to biases. I somehow know that if you say peanut butter, I'm going to say jelly. That's an association that's been ingrained in me because throughout my life, peanut butter and jelly are together. And in many forms of media, there is an over-representation of black men and violent crime being paired together. And because of that, I actually deep down inside have been taught that black men are violent and aggressive and not to be trusted, that they're criminals, that they're thugs. With all those associations, I'm not trying to let us off the hook, but in some ways, none of us stood a chance. Starting today, we'll post a video a day dealing with one challenge of understanding implicit bias and its relationship to race and exploring ways we might combat the problem. One more thing, if you're seeing this and thinking that it doesn't apply to you, well, you might be falling prey to the blind spot bias. That's the scientific name for a mental bias that allows you to see biases in others, but not in yourself. We're biased. Okay, you see what he, that argument, I mean, you see, first of all, they present it in these happy little happy talk, fun music in the background videos, but the message is everybody's biased, everybody's, they say it's not the same as racist, but of course it's what they're saying. Everybody's biased, everybody's racist, and so the real trick is whether you're honest enough to assess your own thought, or are you just too full of yourself, you won't do that. But you, so you, this, tell me which, this, this video was played in your high school, grandson? Yeah, his history class, and I wanna add something to the hypocrisy that you're talking about there. If you remember when Tom Cotton was interviewing Vanita Gupta to, for the DOJ, and she had made proclamations throughout the last year that everybody's got uh, racial biases and everybody's a racist and he asked her point blank you know that what is your uh racial implicit bias she refused to answer the question 
you know, it, it's a hypocrisy that runs rampant in the entire industry, and unfortunately, it, run, it runs rampant in our government too. Well, it's pointing at it's it is the implicit notion that if you're a person of color, you can't be guilty of bias. It's only white America who Absolutely is. Absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah, it's very tough. So there were a couple other videos. So these right. were sent to you by your daughter-in-law that were played in your kid, your grandson's high school. Yeah, he was given it as a homework assignment, and then he he had to watch them and then answer a, a long list of questions. And, and the, the interesting thing, you know, they've developed an algorithm on these questions now that uh. can steer, based on the first couple answers, they can steer the child oh. to answering the questions either differently or the way they need to, to get to the end of the game, whatever, you know, so that they can be declared a, a white supremacist or a racist. So they're- or have white privilege, whatever it is. It's yeah. reinforced. So um, at, the end of the, at the end of it, after he watched the videos and answered the questions, he felt horrible because they were gonna. They wanted to make him admit that he was prejudiced against people that he had no prejudice against whatsoever. But in order to complete his class and get a grade, he had to admit he was prejudiced, and it's horrible. I mean, it, you know, and I, I went through the roof. I mean, I'm just, I'm calm right now. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was, I, I was ballistic when I found out. Well, I do want to get to, I know you actually took the great step I want to commend you for of speaking in front of the Highland Park Independent School District Board. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I really do commend that because I think many parents, they have, they go home or they hear this at home and they grumble at the dinner table and say, gee, that's terrible. They shouldn't be doing this. But this of all issues is so hard to speak up about because the people who believe in critical race theory who are listening to your, I mean, the concern people have is, well, they're probably going to think I'm racist if I won't go along with critical race theory. Well, that's exactly right. And, and it, it is a fear. Um, there's no question about it. Um, the vast majority of the people that have responded to me have said have been very, very favorable. And they commend me for having, you know, the guts, I guess, to get up and speak. Yeah. But I've got eight grandchildren and I'm not just I'm not just up there for my eight grandchildren. I'm up there for all the other people that I know in Highland Park that, you know, I work with them or I see them every day. I see guys, the same guys at the donut shop at Mustang Donut every Saturday morning. I see the same bunch of guys and they all have kids and they're not standing up and do anything because they're scared to death of what's going to happen. You know, and, and I'm not at, at this point, I'm, you know, I'm retired and 63. I don't, you know, it's, it won't bother me if somebody says I'm a racist now because I've proven in the 63 years of my life that I'm not a racist. So I'm pretty okay with it. And, uh, and I think that's the big barrier to, to people, more people standing up, but I'm willing to do it. Oh, I love that you did. And actually I have your uh, speech that you sent to me, what you actually said, very, um, very rational, very logical, but very forceful. I, I, I really commend that. I want to actually these other tapes, because I think these kind of things, if your daughter-in-law hadn't seen them herself, hadn't forwarded them to you, it, you wouldn't have ever had the impetus to have a conversation at the Highland Park Independent School District and the school itself, the school district, is was not letting parents know ahead of time that this is coming. And I, I just think there'd be a lot of parents because I, I you know, our, our, my Christian faith and we taught our children and we were taught we were growing up, you know, you know love your neighbor as yourself or all God's children. I mean, we were taught these things and, and, and America has is just I mean, it's full of good people who understand the idea. You don't judge people by the, uh, the uh, color of their skin. That's what mostly America is. But this insidious 
philosophy, this theory, it gets in the minds of kids uh, in Highland Park and, and all across the country. This isn't a story unique to Texas, all over the country, and begin to doubt yourself. And then you're asked to acknowledge, okay, I guess I really am biased. And then you, it, it's like you, you have been, um, your, your parents' teaching of you has been contradicted by the school. And, and you, your parents taught you how to act and how to think, but schools say, no, actually, you know, even though they're telling you you're a good person, you're not. And you are, but it, it's horrible. Okay, I want to play the second tape, Matt, with, with another tape that was, again, played in the Howland Park schools. Let's look at how to measure bias in ourselves and in others. Here's Dolly Chu from NYU. We sent emails to real professors in real universities. They contacted over 6,500 professors at random from 260 American universities. We sent them an email that looked like it came from a real person asking for a meeting to learn more about the PhD program in that university. But we randomly assigned whether the, the fictional person sending that email had a name that sounded male or female and sounded white, Chinese, Hispanic, Indian, or black. What we found that is if you were a white male, you were far more likely to receive a response back than if you were in all those other categories put together as a group. Some of this could be explicit racism, but it's far more likely that in many cases, these professors are just busy. They can't respond to every email they get. So they kind of let their subconscious decide for them. And that's where their biases come through. Research shows that our racial biases are often more about who we choose to help than who we don't and we tend to help people who are similar to us. But you aren't 6,500 randomly selected professors. So how can you figure out where you might be making similar unconscious choices? First, there's a well-known test online you can take that can help show you biases you hold. Or, just do an audit. Whatever data you have, whether it's formal data in a computer, or whether it's just data that's sort of anecdotal, look at the data. For example, I met this fantastic executive in Silicon Valley. He takes great pride in being someone who actively tries to achieve gender balance on his teams, knowing that Silicon Valley and tech are skewed heavily male. So he looked at his professional social network, his Twitter, his LinkedIn. He found his network was far more skewed male than he expected. So there's a place where he could actively work to shift that, and that's what he's been doing since then. So this is not a scientifically exact self-audit, but it can still be useful, and you can audit anything. So maybe start by taking that online test for bias, maybe check out whose emails you're replying to, but you can also audit yourself for implicit bias by asking a friend to observe you in the real world. If you're a teacher, have people look at who you call on most in class, whatever your interactions are. One practical thing that people should do is take stock of their friends. It would be very useful for people to actually make lists of people with whom they spend time. Look for patterns. That's the audit. That's the assessment we can all do. You know what? I will say about that one. I, I, I do want to let Leo comment on it, but I will say about that one. Again, I know, you know, in our Christian faith growing up, we were taught, you know, to not be prejudiced, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so maybe if some message like this came from a pastor or a priest in a sermon, you know, let's let, we really ought to be more open-minded. We should look at who we ally ourselves, who we hang around with. It's okay, you know, this is a helpful suggestion. This is the government 
Public schools are the government, the government schools. The government telling students you should audit your life because you're probably really racist and then begin to direct your social life and maybe other aspects. I'd love to have you comment what other aspects of that video uh, you reacted to. Well, let me tell you the very most interesting thing about that. You know, they, they say they emailed out 6,500 responses and then the results were that you were two thirds likely, more likely as a white man to get a response as a person yeah. of color. But they didn't say how many responses they got on 6,500. They may have gotten four. You know, they, it, so they completely Good made point. up their statistical sampling and, and don't give any basis for it. And everybody buys into it. And, and unless you're a mathematical, statistical person, you look at it and say, oh, God, that's horrible. I mean, that means they got 5,500 responses and they were all white guys. Yep. You know, they, it's complete gar. And I, I was cautioned not to use the word garbage. I used it three times in my other speech that, you know, it, Maybe I shouldn't use the word garbage, but you it's know what? It's a good word. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's garbage. Hogwash. It's garbage statistics. Okay? Yeah. So other than that, it, once I got to that point and saw that, I knew the rest of it was a lie. And I, it, it, it shut me down. Other people may, have, may watch it and get a, a, a feeling that, you know, they need to do a self-assessment. But at, at some point, you, you, you know who you are. If, like the example about, his uh, his Twitter network or whatever it was was 20% women and 80% men or something like that, and they he needed to work on him getting more women into his into his group. Well, he may have 20% of really intellectual conservative women or 20% really liberal thinking women, and then maybe the the uh, the ability to get any more uh, people of the type he wants to respond to it's not there. So I'm not so sure that that's a valid way to assess anything. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And actually, well, on the subject of connections you make on social media, especially on LinkedIn, people tend to affiliate with people like them. I right. mean, you know, so if you're a, I mean, whether it, for whatever cause there is for it, if you are a professor of math, if you have any of the STEM things, you're going to be more likely, you're more likely to be male, your colleague is more likely to be male. There's a million factors that weigh in to, to the people you connect with based on what you major in, what you study, what your career is. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I want to mention one quick thing too that I've been reading more about critical race theory. One of the things they say is in critical race theory, it's not sufficient to even go through all of their implicit bias assessment and all their self-analysis, um, or as my father used to describe, examining your navel, but whatever, self-analysis. Um, and even if you say, okay, I guess I should be more open this way or that way, but the critical race theory answer is you must commit not merely to be not racist, you have to be affirmatively anti-racist. And that gets you into then they're telling you how a you must function to be morally acceptable to them. Yes. Have you talked about this anti-racist thing? Or well, no? I have, and I want to add one thing to that because uh, Robin DeAngelis, who's one of the, you know, she's the white fragility, she'll charge you $10,000 to do a white, uh, a white confessional so that you can be free of your sins. Are you kidding? 10,000 bucks and you're free. Yeah, that's yeah, a bargain at any, <laughs> at any cost. Okay. Can you wow. imagine? No, I did not know that. Okay, yeah. so, so I'm sorry. The person says Robin DeAngelis. Yeah, and wrote the book fr White, White Fragility. Trail. Fragility. All right, Fragility. Yeah. yeah, and Fragility is uh, is basically if 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 you say I'm a racist and I try to deny it, I'm fragile. Yeah. I'm just falling apart. You know. 
because you are required once they say this you're required to agree with them or else you're fragile or are you i mean it is like they've set up everything you must think and believe and if you challenge it then there's something wrong with you absolutely correct oh my gosh i was gonna mention one other thing about this um we have had on this show, and I can't remember the date, I meant to look before I got here, but we had on the show recently a gentleman who lives in Minnesota, uh, name is Kendall Qualls, and he's a black Republican who ran for Congress in a heavily Democrat district. He did pretty well, but he didn't win. But anyway, really solid guy. He formed something called uh, Direct Think Minnesota, that's not the right name. Anyway, some name like that. But he's basically, he's a black conservative, happily married, has five kids, and, he's ba and it is directly designed to debunk critical race theory. He's saying this is all garbage being fed into our community, teaching uh, the African-American community in Minneapolis to blame all the problems they have, all the issues they have on somebody else, somebody else's skin color. He's saying, how about we start at home? How about stay in school? How about don't have kids till you get married? How about get an education? How about get a job? I mean, he just is talking about basic life. And he's very much into going to church, being comp complying with the whole set of norms that Western civilization has had in place for centuries that allow for people to succeed and thrive. And he's saying, you're just being, you're being fed. The african-american community he's talking to in minneapolis you're being fed lies to excuse the failures and shortcomings when the fact is we got to turn inward and bolster our own community by following things that are universally true and other thing i was going to say is called take charge minnesota thank goodness someone texted me take charge minnesota take charge mn is his group uh, i'm going to bring him by the way to dallas to give a speech I, I really like that guy anyway one more thing about this and i want to turn back to leo I was going to mention that in Texas, the Dallas, the Texas GOP, the Republican Party, chaired by Al, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, he had a statement out today. So this is the head of the Republican Party of Texas, a black guy, a military hero. You know, he's just a rock and a good friend, a rock solid guy. He put out a statement on behalf of the Texas GOP, statement on critical race theory, and basically said, this has no place in the Texas public schools. Everybody ought to be fighting it. Everyone ought to be objecting. And I wanted to raise that because I think it's very easy for the people who advocate for critical race theory to say, well, you're just saying this because you're white. But there are plenty of black conservatives saying the same thing. It's not about skin color. Is it a good idea or a bad idea? Is it a true theory or a false theory? Assess the theory, leaving skin color out of it, because there are plenty of black conservatives who are just as down in critical race theory as, as are many white conservatives. Okay. And I was going to go to the third video, but I don't know if I cut you off there. Do you have anything you were to add right now? Oh, I could add stuff for an hour, but let's just go to the next <laughs> video. Okay. One last video, Matt the Wonderful. I'm a white male, and I am prejudiced. A few months ago, a man called into a TV show trying to be less racist. What can I do to change? Get to know black families. Join a church if you are a religious person that is uh, a black church. Foster conversation in your family and in your neighborhood where you're asking exactly those kinds of questions. Okay, clearly that was an amazing conversation. But will her suggestions work? Does it sound a little too easy? One study I really like here is a study where they looked at college freshmen. Some white undergraduates will get randomly assigned to a white roommate, and some of them will get randomly assigned to a black roommate. What researchers found is that for white undergraduate students who were randomly assigned to a black roommate, they had reduced levels of implicit racial bias at the end of a semester compared to the students who had a white roommate. 
So this example okay. uses black and white roommates. Yeah, I'm gonna cut that one off because they go on, on, on. They basically go out, get on to the point about everyone should try to, to have more interaction with people who don't look like them. That, that's their basic point. So I wanna go back now and ask you, I, have, I realize as I'm watching all this stuff, I'm more bothered by, is the schools even thinking this is their job at all to be teaching this to children? But what is your reaction to that, I thought? Well, I, I look at it, um, again, from the lens of hypocrisy, because where, where this comes from. And, and there's a, uh, a principal of a junior high in San Francisco. Uh, his name is Joe Truss. And his kids, um, he's a gigantic proponent of, you know, white supremacy is the problem. Critical mm -hmm. race theory is going to fix everything. And his kids uh, read at a... Um, Okay. Uh, they, they read it 27% uh, of their level that they're supposed to. The kids in the school? The kid in his school. Okay. And they tested a 12% proficiency in math. Now, at Highland Park High School, they tested 84% proficiency and 83% in reading, and 99% of the kids graduate from Highland Park High School. So you've got a guy, and, and you, you know, I could make cases all over the country uh, of those type of statistics. Highland Park High School doesn't have an issue as it relates to the kids and, and their, what they're being taught. Now, the things that are being taught that are being forced upon them that don't have anything to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic are the things that are bothersome. And why is it happening? And why has it become cachet to foist this, these theories and, and these you know, psychological ops, psyops psy on yep. the kids? And it, and it makes no sense at all why it's happening. It doesn't need to happen. The, the, the kids are doing very, very well in the school. So I, I'm not sure I understand why there, why there is an issue that it has to be put in place. I think there is, you use the word cachet. I think that it's a little bit of a trendiness. It's like everyone's looking for the latest thing. Oh, now this is the new thing. And many people who are involved in teaching it probably aren't way down the path and agreeing, but this is kind of what we're supposed to be doing right now. So let me get to this point, and then I want to talk about you uh, speaking in front of the Hallam Park Independent School Board, but what harm, what is the, I'm trying to play devil's advocate, what's the harm to the kids? So what if they do, they are taught these things? How do you see it as harmful? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think kids today are dealing with, with tremendous issues, and, and, and given what's happened in the last year of COVID, I mean, suicides are spiking, mental depression is spiking amongst children, and here you are, you're lumping one more thing on them that's, that's making them feel bad. And that's not really what needs to happen. They, they need to be supported. They need to be made, you know, they need to be made to feel like they're important and that, that they have some value. And instead, crushing their value by telling them they're a racist? That's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you know, I have to say part of what, I, I, because you also had done a bunch of research on critical race theory, and I have been reading a lot about it too, it ends up getting you to where there's no way forward out of the category, the silo you've been assigned to. It's one thing and in the church, if you're teaching children to love your neighbors yourself, to put yourself in someone else's shoes, those are things where you have a goal of community and love and connection. And through church, you have the, you know, the uh, body of teachings. But the, the outcome, is, is according to the people who write about critical race or who founded it, is just even if you 
concede and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be, a, um, you know, I'm, I acknowledge I'm a bad person, their interest convergence, they utterly dismiss the idea that you've actually reformed. It's like you are permanently tagged with what they've discovered as your, your bias, and you, there, there's no path forward to unity. That's right. I, just, I think it ends up being just a destructive thing. So, okay, so you testified at the Highland Park School District, basically told them what you think. What was the reaction? Well, from the school board, not much. Uh, I, I tried to make eye contact with each member as I was speaking, and you only have three minutes, so it's, it's a little hurried. And, uh, and I hadn't spoken in public in years, so it, it, mm -hmm. it was kind of something that I needed to get back yeah. comfortable with. And you can tell the first minute I'm, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable. And I, I settled in, and, and right about the time I was settling in, there, there was an applause in the audience, and they stopped me, and there was some back and forth. And, and, and evidently, there's a lot of acrimony between the, the parents and the uh, school board, and I, that may be normal. I, it was my first exposure to a meeting like that. Um, and so it went on for a bit, and it, it didn't get me off my game, but it, it was a little bit disconcerting uh, for that to happen. But I think, I, I'm not sure the school board received it all that well, but, but I know that the parents received it very, very well. Um, there were seven or eight speakers. Uh, I was one of seven or eight. The other seven um, were all speaking about mask mandates for the kids. And, oh. and, and obviously that's been an ongoing continual issue. I think what happened was uh, you, know, you fill out a card and they, you turn it in. And I know I wasn't the first person to turn a card in, but I, I think the, the head, uh, Mr. Trigg saw that he was gonna have only one guy not talking about masks, so he let me go first. So it was a little, uh, you know, he called my name and I was up there before I knew what was happening. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but I, I was ready. I mean, I, I spent a good bit of time getting ready and I had, you know, three weeks to think about it. Um, but it, um, I did receive a call uh, shortly after from um, the director of communications and, and he and I have had a fair amount of conversations and, and respectful. Um, and I, you know, I pointed out to him I was very concerned that they didn't seem to know what was being taught in their schools. That was your sense that the school board didn't even realize it was being taught? Well, my, my initial impression from my conversation with him, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any question that there's a couple of school board members that know exactly what's being taught in their school. They, they're, from what I've been told, they are in favor of critical race theory yeah. being taught. So that they know at some level it's being taught. And if they don't know, that's a real problem. It's a, you know, it's a gigantic problem for a school of the magnitude of Highland Park that teachers are, are teaching things they shouldn't be teaching. And I don't, I don't believe that that's the case. I believe they're being told that they can run with it if they, if they feel like they want to. Yeah, um, absent, as far as I know, absent of state law prohibiting it in public schools, they, they can do that. I mean, they, they can probably choose their things, but you know, it's a really interesting, it's a bigger issue in public schools in America people realizing because of COVID and having to homeschool for periods of time because schools were closed, they began to realize the things that their kids are being taught that maybe hadn't focused very much on it before. And I mean, the, to me, it dovetails with the changes in curriculum in public schools on the subject of American history, uh, what our country's all about, who our founders were. I mean, the teachings about uh, among critical race theory is, is this notion that you're supposed to be more enlightened than just assuming that our founders, our founding fathers had good ideas. You, you're, you're, you People emerge from, kids emerge from public school teaching, critical of our founders, a bunch of old white racists who most of them own slaves. 
and it causes you to turn against America first, and America as an idea, as founded, America as a culture, because the premise, as we were talking earlier, the premise of this is every racism, everything is about racism, and everybody's a racist, and that's the way it is. And so you as a student, you get a very different picture of the world than you might have had coming from your home and coming from your parents. And some of them might argue, well, it's just more realistic, but it's not, it's got an agenda to it. It caused you to hate the idea of America, which ties in exactly what leftism wants, which is hating America and therefore being very open to and amenable to the transition to a socialist Marxist country, which is where the left is headed. So there's an agenda there that's deeper than just racial relations in the country. It feeds into, and maybe you're not in, in, in the issues I'm talking about, but it feeds into that whole agenda. I can't tell you how many times I've driven by a statue from the Civil War and wanted to go kill somebody. I mean, it. <laughs> that was a joke. Yeah, that was a joke. joke. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just ridic it's ridiculous to assume yep. that a statue would oh, yeah, yep. let someone think that, that it's okay to do commit a crime. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a really, really hard thing we're having with, um, and you worry about kids leaving schools after having, you know, our public schools, we're just becoming more alert to the th things, changes have been made over decades, right. but kids leaving schools, uh, not impressed with America, not sold, not taught the idea of America's founding, and then ending up with instead, civics means learn how to go out and be a protester. One last thing you sent me, Matt, I sent you a piece of paper. It might be hard to read in the screen, but let's just try it. Um, it was a, a sheet that, um, I brought a copy for you. If you right, I'm oh, Okay, um, but this is a sheet that it says demographics at the top. Oh, yeah, you meant to be able to see it. I'll just tell you what it says. Demographics. So this is a, this was a, your high school son, grandson? Grandson had to fill okay. this out. Demographics. What sex were you assigned at birth on your original birth certificate? So you pick male or female. And then what's your current gender identity? Check all that apply. And then, you know, there are choices. Male, female, trans, male, trans, man, trans, female, trans, woman, gender, queer, gender, nonconforming, a different identity. Okay, that's what that sheet says. Your high school grandson had to fill this out. Did that bother him? He was very uncomfortable with it. Very uncomfortable, and, uh, and I'm uncomfortable with it. I, I and I'm, well, I'm and if you look at my speech at, at the uh, school board when I mentioned that a junior in high school shouldn't be having to fill something like that out, that that got a, a tremendous amount of applause from the parents and the in the crowd. You know, I, everybody's welcome to be what they want to be and who they are, but. I'm pretty sure that there's only two sexes, male and female, oh, you know, and I, I do want to read something. I don't know if you saw this. that was in CNN today. Uh, absolutely insane. They, they didn't, no. they don't, they don't give it any, uh, where it came from, but th this was actually printed in an article when they were talking about, uh, Christy Nome, uh, her executive order of banning transgender, uh, yep. competing in sports outside their own birth sex. And, CNN said today, it is, it's not possible to know a person's gender identity at birth, and there is no consensus criteria for assigning a sex at birth. This was in the okay. middle of that. You Say mean, those the last sentence again, no consensus criteria. For assigning sex at birth. Okay, so we live in the world of pretend people. We live in the world of crazy. I didn't realize that we've, uh, we've been talking a long time. We kind of got past our time here. Um, so the reason I want to bring Leo in today, because I want to have you here, a real family dealing with these kind of issues, grandson in high school, not that comfortable, two grandsons. Twins in the middle school, twins in the and uh, one in the elementary school, and three more behind it. 
Okay, and the thing I also want to commend is your willingness to go and speak at, because these issues, of all the issues there are to fight, these issues that talk about race are very difficult because the public school and the independent school boards are just very likely to just want to dismiss it, just want to dismiss it because it's just too, they don't want to hear protests, they don't want, and, and a parent speaking up is going to be worried they'll be perceived as racist. So I really commend your bravery very much. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me on. I'll come back anytime. Okay, okay, you heard it here, you said you'd come back. I'll be okay. better prepared next time. <laughs> no, you were great, okay. Thank I will tell you much. folks, um, there's a um, thing I wanted to do, I'm gonna run out of time on the topic I was going to hit. I was going to talk about the new chapter of America Can We Talk. I'll show you that in the slides, but I want to hit one last topic. I called it Easter and Passover in America. I just wanted to wrap up by saying this um, because we are in the middle of the Holy Week and I have not yet really talked about Easter and Passover. Usually I do, I do some kind of um, topic on Easter and Passover um, week and there's one of that they are right now. So I want to make just a couple of remarks about that and I'll even tie it to politics, but that is this. You know, when you're a kid growing up in a Christian home, you know, Christmas is the great thing because after all you get, you know, you have wonderful Christmas carol, you eat Christmas cookies all December long, you have great Christmas parties and Christmas day you get gifts. Christmas always seems like the most important holiday growing up in the Christian household. And I had a uh, Norwegian Lutheran grandfather and uncles, you know, my family, always saying, the pastor is always saying, no, it's Easter. Easter is the most important Christian holiday. And kids are like, no, it's not. I mean, Christmas cookies are better than chocolate Easter bunnies. I mean, you know, when you're a kid, that's how you think. But most Christians, as you grow up in life, you become more aware uh, that Easter really is the, the signal, single most important Christian holiday. Uh, it is the most um, meaningful uh, in terms of the Christian life, the, the resurrection story, the salvation story, the, uh, I mean, the, all of the, the story of just promise and new life and new hope. I mean, the Christian, uh, the resurrection story of Easter is the most profoundly story profoundly important story in the Bible for Christians. Passover, which is also right now, Passover is March 27th to April 4th, celebrated by our Jewish friends, uh, is also extremely important in their faith. And many Christian pastors I know actually also celebrate and honor Passover because it's you know part of the Bible. It's the Old Testament and the Bible and the Christian faith embraces the whole Bible. So Passover is this wonderful, um, acknowledgement, uh, remembrance every year of the protection of the Jewish people as they were being freed from slavery. Moses is bringing them out of uh, slavery under, the, under Pharaoh. And the latest, you know, the last plague is they're going to kill every, uh, the oldest child, oldest boy in every family. And so that was the plague that um, God sent to punish Pharaoh because he wouldn't let the uh, Jews be freed from slavery. And the Jews were protected from this horrible plague by painting the blood of the lamb on the door of their home. And that meant and this other, and the other people who didn't do that did have in this, in the Bible story, had their, uh, lost their oldest child, their oldest son. And the um, Jews were saved. You know, the, the plague passed over their home, did not enter their home. They did not lose their children. And I say all that to say Passover is a wonderful celebration of God's pre presence and protection, an idea that is just just uh, you know celebrated every year uh, by our Jewish friends and neighbors who uh, just celebrate God's presence and protection. And right now, here in 2021, it's been an interesting thing to watch. There are more people I'm aware of in my you know generation. Our kids are grown. Um, who have become more um, 
more tied to their faith, more deeply committed to their faith. And in part, it's because they're so worried about America. I mean, they, people, people begin to see more and more the connection between the founding Judeo-Christian ideas of America and America as it was intended to be, and America where we are in 2021, where many people are very concerned that we're losing America the free, or we're losing the whole founding idea of America, and people are more drawn to their faith. And I've just noticed this in conversations, you know, I get on conference calls often with um, groups concerned with national security, groups concerned with other you know, big issues. And more and more commonly over the last several years have been people uh, you know, wanting to openly pray in the calls, starting with prayer or closing it with prayer. And more, just my, even my friends more likely to mention, um, you know, I'm concerned about this, I'm praying about this. And I think part of what we're seeing is you can look at the problems America faces and say, well, we could get better election integrity laws, we could get better border security laws, better immigration laws, uh, better policy, and a whole slew of issues. What people are recognizing is that America really was founded on belief in the presence and the power of God and the idea that God-given identity, God-given purpose in life to each of us that was that was protected, that was at the core of creating America and is intended by the founding of America to be protected, to allow individuals to live out their their God-given identity and purpose and place. And people see that threatened these days. They see it as from the rise of the radical left in this country. People see that uh, it's bigger to solve our problems, it's bigger than fixing election, than just fixing election integrity law or any other particular uh, issue, that we really have a need to get back to the ultimate truth of the Bible for Christians. It's the whole Bible for our Jewish friends, the teachings of the Old Testament. There's a need to get back to truth. And I wanted to honor all of that in this Easter week or and Passover week. It is a time for people to, you know, and the busyness and, and heaven knows I am immersed in political activity and in policy discussions, uh, you know, pretty much 24-7. But I want to acknowledge in this time, if this is really a special Holy Week, to urge people to just take a moment to step back from the issues facing us to remember what Easter stands for, to remember the beauty of Passover, to pray about America. I get a lot of emails from listeners saying, you should talk more about praying for America. I do pray for America every day. My husband and I do. We, we pray for America. We pray for its strength, its permanence. Um, it's, you know, it, the wisdom we needed to make adjustments, to deal with the challenges we face. There are millions of Americans praying for America, and that's really needed, especially in this Holy Week. I just want to, I don't usually talk much on this show about prayer um, or about my faith, but I'm, you know, we're very strongly Christian, and I love the idea that in America, there are millions and millions of hearts, people praying their hearts out, trying to understand best what way forward there is to to save America, to save America from the... um, the many extreme dangers we face. Um, and politics is even too shallow a word to use. It is the threats we face in America, they really are threats to the ultimate freedom that was that upon which America was founded, the freedom of the individual, the right of the individual to live in freedom. That is what is under assault in America today by the, the radical Marxist left. There's no room for God, no room for faith, no room for values shaped by your faith. And so there are people around this country recognizing it's time to be in the fight full on to defend this country. And that includes defending the place of freedom, of religious freedom, um, and, and urging in our society and our culture a return to a trust in God and a prayer to God, prayer to God regularly to help us get through where we are. So 
I skip one of my topics. We're going to go right to what I do at the end of the show. I tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started today, first part of the show, the Georgia election law and critical race theory. Georgia election reform law. People must write a driver's license number on their absentee ballot envelopes. Limiting ballot drop boxes to places that can't be tampered with. Limiting private solicitation of voters in line at precincts. I mean, that, that was one of the things that was, I, I mean, it's so absurd. There's nothing racist in that law. To label these as akin to Jim Crow laws, which is what President Biden said, is ignorant, absurd, and irresponsible. Yet Delta Airlines, Major League Baseball, Georgia law firms act to align with opponents of election reform. Georgia law firms oust attorneys who are Georgia representatives who voted for the reforms. They fear the leftist mob and believe the mob can sway their clients to leave them, so they oust law partners who are acting legitimately as duly elected officials. This reflects a collapse of cultural confidence in the discernment and decency of the American people. And on the new chapter for America Can We Talk, I did not get to this in the show, but I want to play that just to remind you, tomorrow's our big day. We are going live. Tomorrow's our big first day of having our members only Thursdays. From now on, every Thursday show will be members only. Anyone's welcome to become a member. You go to our website, americachemitalk.org, and on that website, you can hit, you find the members button, you hit join. It's $5 a month or $50 a year. Tomorrow, we have a great guest joining us, a great guest, Todd Benzman, former DPS counterterrorism official. I mean, great writer, great uh, activist at the border. Um, he is a senior uh, director at the Center for um, Immigration Studies now. He's just going to be great and give us a firsthand insight on what's happening at the southern border. So that's tomorrow. He's our special guest. Beginning tomorrow, members only on Thursdays. Um, Thursdays will be unique in a new studio, live audience, Q&A. Um, with viewers, Matt the Wonderful will join me, which is a great thing, and a family-style conversation about what matters in America. Membership fees defray the cost of producing this show. They help pay for broader distribution and keep all shows uninterrupted and commercial-free. And on Passover and Easter in America, Holy Week in America, Passover for Jews, freedom from the bondage to Pharaoh, safety from harsh government decree, on through the Red Sea to the Ten Commandments and the Promised Land for the children of Israel, celebrated for millennia. Easter for Christians, even more important than Christmas. I did finally figure that out after my childhood preference for Christmas. Even more important than Christmas, finding in the resurrection the most complete concept of freedom and salvation built on the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, celebrated for 2,000 plus years. The Jewish and Christian concepts of freedom are the foundation of America. This is why so many references to Judeo-Christian values. And this last little treat for today's show, I want to show you this. On this Passover and Easter in America, you know, we have a national a, a seal, the, U, the uh, United States, the American seal, um, and it is a, uh, you know, it's the eagle. But this, what you're looking at here, that was America's second place entrant for consideration as the great seal of the United States. And what is depicted there, if you can't see it, is the children of Israel emerging from the Red Sea, guided by Moses and the pillar of cloud by day. And it was called rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. That was going to be the slogan around this other, the second choice runner up for the great seal of the U.S. It said around the edge, again, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. <clears throat> Excuse me. America does in fact have a Judeo-Christian foundation. And that particular design of the seal 
was the one that Benjamin Franklin wanted. He voted for that one, but we ended up with the other one. So I wanted to wrap up by saying this show today is our last show before our first launch tomorrow of our members only. We're going to have a great Thursday, very cool studio, very great guests. We'll have a great conversation. It's a Q&A format. People in the audience can ask questions. People who are members can send in questions to me. Um, and I'll be sending email out tonight with more details so you remember how to do all the things. You can participate in that conversation. I'm uh, looking forward to it. And for everybody else, I will see you back on Monday. So I'm Debbie Georgiatis, and this is America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Can you America Can We Talk, truth about America. Can